Let me pray again here briefly. Father, as we look into your word, Lord, as Stan prayed earlier, would you communicate to us this morning that single element, that single truth, that single word of clarity that we need this morning, whatever that might be. Lord, we know your word is truth. It's from that that we come to understand you more fully and see the way you want to glorify yourselves through us and in us. And we ask that your spirit would fully honor you this morning as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses retelling the story of the Exodus. You know, sometimes the first five books of the Bible seem a little confusing if you don't realize sort of what order they're written in and what each one of those books is meant to do. But Deuteronomy, is it's Moses' swan song. It's the last thing he writes because Israel has come through their 40-year march in the wilderness. They're poised at the boundary of the land of promise. And Moses is right at the end of his life. And so he's recording his last words and his last thoughts. That's what Deuteronomy is. And he's retelling the story of the Exodus, how God led. And as you get towards the end of that book, the end of Deuteronomy, Moses lays out a choice for the Jewish nation. And they're in this covenant with God, and God's promised to bless them. But Moses reminds them that if they keep covenant faithfulness, God has promised to bless them, and he enumerates these various ways God will do that. But then he also says, but if you break covenant faithfulness, these are the curses that will come on you. And Moses wants them to choose life, as Yahweh wants them to choose life. And so as he winds down there in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, I think this might be in your study sheet or perhaps in the bulletin, Moses there says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, holding on to Him, for He is your life and length of days. God Himself is your life. He's the one that provides length of days. And of course, Moses' words there echo the God we know generally throughout the Bible, the God of life. Think too of John 10.10 where Jesus says, I'm the one in contrast to the thief. I've come that you might have life and not a little bit of life, but that you might have it abundantly. And in emphasizing this aspect that God is a God of joy and peace and life, that's kind of God as we like to see Him and like to think about Him, all on the upside. But the truth is there's another side of God that Moses brought out there in that Deuteronomy 30 passage. God is also a God who curses. God is also a God who deals in death. And what do we make of that? Where does that take us? How does that affect our concept of God And how does that affect the way you and I live today? It was going through the study of the ten words and reading through the first five books of the Bible this year in my own quiet times that I was struck again how often death comes at Yahweh's or God's command. How intricately tied death and life are in God's plans. And what do we do of that? And what do we make of that. 
We're going to be really, really brief this morning on this concept. But because of the study, I wanted to touch on this. Maybe you, like me, as we're talking about death penalties and things along that line, it seems like God focuses an awful lot on death. How do we handle that? Where does that take us? Point number one there on your study sheet, Yahweh commands death. It's important, by the way, first, first things first, when we talk about God, God doesn't apologize for Himself for anything He does. He doesn't need to. He's God and we're not. And when it comes to life or death, God is God. He's the Creator of us. Paul says later in Acts, in Him we live and move and have our being within God and His good will. And if God chooses for any one of us to extend long life, or if God chooses for any one of us to give us a very short life, in judgment or otherwise, He's God. And He's free to do that. And He needs to give us no explanation for that whatsoever. He's God and we're not. But he does explain some of the ways and some of the reasons why he deals so much in death in this life, in this time. I've read letters to the editor recently, follow-ups on a letter from someone in our church uh, to the editor a couple weeks ago, and I was struck at the absolute lack of charity, common sense, basic courtesy on the follow-up letters that just had to do with the courteous assessment of uh, this nation's policy on marriage, just from a biblical perspective. It was striking. There were dozens, literally, probably over a hundred of responses to this email, and almost all of them were negative, not just negative, they were harsh. And it's in this culture, when Christians talk about God the God the culture often thinks about is a death-dealing, small-minded God. And some of that attitude or that thought about what is the God the Christians represent, the God of the Bible, what does He look like, some of that comes because they're aware that God told Israel when they went into the land of promise to either push out or to wipe out in death all the inhabitants of the land of promise. And that's true, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here yet this morning. But it's also true, and it needs to be pointed out, that long before the nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan River and entered the land of promise, and before Israel had marched around the city of Jericho one time or the trumpets had been blown, before any of that had occurred, Yahweh Himself had judged in death tens of thousands of Jews. People in his covenant group, God had already put to death divinely. He had killed tens of thousands of Jews before they ever took on a battle in the land of promise. Yahweh dealt death within his own covenant people, divinely. Not from another army, divinely. Fire from heaven. The earth opening up. It's important to realize God didn't just command death to the Gentiles. He brought about directly, sovereignly, death to tens of thousands of people within His covenant group before they went to the land of promise. Better known, as I've already mentioned, was that God commanded you must either drive out or kill all of the inhabitants of the land of promise. 
That's the focus of many who know anything about the God that Christians proclaim today. So you see the God of life, and by the way, I'm focusing this morning almost exclusively on the first five books of the Bible, though what we're saying here would be multiplied. These stories, these these principles, they're multiplied time and time and time again throughout all the course of the Bible. We're just touching a very, very small point of that this morning. We see that God Himself brings about deals in death within His own covenant people first and also among the Gentiles secondarily. If we ask ourselves, what's at stake? If the God that we come to worship this morning is a God of life, why does He deal so much in death? Why is the God that we worship as merciful? Why does it appear that He is so judgmental? We talk to people today about a God of life, and yet clearly death is part of what this God does. Now because we're dealing so narrowly with this this morning, I'm going to point out a few reasons why God deals in death, and I'm only going to focus on one, but you could have a study of this concept alone. One of the reasons God deals in death is He's simply being true to His character and executing justice or judgment on those who do evil. You know, if we see someone who's done evil, capital crimes, a war criminal, and they're executed, we understand that justice is being done. And sometimes God acts in death, death penalties or divine sovereign acts in which He takes the lives of others because He's executing justice on someone. Other times God is acting consistent with His character, His nature and His will to display His glory. By the way, everything God does at the end of the day glorifies God because it shows some aspect of His nature and His character. And because God is perfect, even when He deals in death, His dealing in death reveals a part of His perfection. So God sometimes judges evil. He always is displaying His glory. The thing I want to focus on this morning, though, point B B under number two there on your study sheet, sometimes God judges sin and those promoting it in death because He is preserving life, He is promoting life, or He is protecting life. In other words, one of the major reasons you'll see God bringing about or commanding death is because He's actually after life or more life. There's a terrible and there's an inescapable truth that God's well aware of and I think we want to shield our eyes from most of the time and it's this that sin brings death. From the temptation account on, God said, if you do this, you'll die. Well, that's been true since our first parents sinned. Sin brings death. Sin always brings death. Sin can only bring death. And yet we, even today, we have the Scriptures in our hand who know what the truth is because God tells us we want to pretend to ourselves that sin doesn't have to bring death that somehow it can be otherwise. And God knows that's simply not true. Sin kills, it brings death, and it destroys life. For life to advance, sin must be kept in check. Sin must not be allowed to freely flourish. And to the degree that sin flourishes, 
so does death. So when death is applied to life-killing elements, life is produced or protected or preserved. So arguably throughout the Scriptures, one of the chief reasons the God we know and love deals and dealt so much with death was because through death he was actually promoting or preserving life. Death was there strategically, not because it was an end in itself, not because God delights in death, because the Scripture's clear He doesn't, but because death was used strategically, if you will, to preserve and to promote life. Sometimes God required death within the nation of Israel. We'll look at a couple examples here. Sometimes God required death to those outside the nation of Israel. But in both cases, the goal was the same. The goal was to preserve God's holy life within the nation so that the nation, fulfilling the promise to Abraham in your seed in part, the nations of the world will be blessed. If Israel was what God meant it to be, it would be a light to the nation. And Gentiles would find life because Israel was fully what God meant it to be. And so you see God commanding life within the nation. If an aberrant group or person came that was going to decimate God's life and plan for Israel, you also see God commanding death to those outside the nation that otherwise might intrude and again do the same thing, bring about death and shorten God's plan to bless not only Israel but the world through them. If you followed uh, posts on the Lion and Lamb forum, you know recently there's people that we know and care about that have cancer. And of course, probably everyone here knows someone dealing with cancer right now in their life. And cancer is an interesting disease because cancer is your body, in essence, killing itself. You know, when we get cancer, cells within our own body refuse to do what they're supposed to do. They move in rebellion, if you will. And they reproduce, but they don't have a function for the body. No healthy, helpful function. And as that cancer inside a body reproduces, it crowds out and kills other healthy cells. It crowds out uh, the function of other body systems. So cells within our own body, left unchecked, reproduce over time and kill us from within. And that's exactly what God wanted to make sure wouldn't happen with the nation of Israel. If sin was left unchecked in the nation of Israel, just like cancer, Israel would die from within. It wouldn't take an outside force to bring death. They would die from within if sin, like cancer, was allowed to reproduce. It would spread and it would take over. So you know today, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you go to your doctor and your oncologist, and they put together a program for you to kill part of your body. You go to radiation therapy and chemo treatments, and the effect of all of that is to kill cells within your own body. Healthy cells also die in that process, necessarily. But you are intentionally asking someone to kill a portion of your body because you understand that in doing so, you're actually saving your life. The treatment that brings death will save your life. Untreated, the cancer within your own body, not an outside force, will kill you. That would have happened to Israel. It happens to us too. 
You know, we take antibiotics. And when we do, we're intentionally killing cells within our own body so that we won't die. You know, someone once told my wife that they dated history as before penicillin and after penicillin. Because you could die from pneumonia quite easily before penicillin. Simple infections in the past. Wars, the folks who died after wars, typically it wasn't the initial wound. It was the infection that followed. We take penicillin to kill cells within our own body so that we don't die ourselves. It preserves life. You know that if a person gets an infection in a limb so badly that it advances to the point of gangrene, do you know what you do with that limb? You cut it off. You cut off hands and feet and arms and legs because if you don't, that death in that one member of your body, it will kill the rest of the body. And so we have no problem telling a person, you know what, we're going to have to cut off your hand or your leg because not because we want you to go around maimed in life, but because we want to save your life. And so d death was used strategically by God within the nation of Israel, not because God delighted in killing people, but because just like taking a cancerous portion out of the body to allow the body to live, God would bring about the death of those within Israel to preserve the life of the nation and the calling the nation had to the nations around to be God's light to them. Number 16 is an example I'll mention this morning that is on your study sheet. If you read this story, you might say, wow, that sounds really harsh. But in the story in number 16, God sovereignly, using fire from heaven, just like Sinai, fire from heaven, and opening the earth, literally, the earth opens up and swallows men and their families. God brings about the death there of 24,000 people because Korah and Dathan and Abiram had come up to Moses and said, we're as good as you, and you're not God's only spokesman. We are too. Moses was a meek and humble man, and Moses never wanted the job of leading this nation. But Moses warned these guys, you are severely out of line. Because what you're doing isn't rebellion against me, it's rebellion against God. God's the one, Moses says, who's made me authority. God's the one who said, the sons of Aaron only are the priesthood. And you, Korah, as a Levite, you serve around the priests, around the temple. But that's not your call, that's not my call. So Korah and Dathan and Abiram, this was rebellion within the nation of Israel. This was cancer. And can you imagine a nation trying to move forward where any person on any day for any whim stands up and says, I'm the new leader, follow me? Much less, in this case, 250 different people and their followers. And God in response, God, not men and not Moses, God brought fire from heaven and consumed and opened the earth and swallowed the cancerous elements within the nation of Israel to preserve the life of the nation. Your study sheet mentions also in this context Numbers 25. I'll only mention this morning for time's sake, I think it was 15,000. I may have my numbers backwards. You guys can check me on this. Numbers 25, 15,000 killed by the plague 
due to worshiping Baal with the Midianites. God's again sovereignly brought about the death of tens of thousands because they had already slipped into pagan idolatry. And I'll briefly mention Judges 19 through 21. You know, if you think the Bible is boring, you haven't read the book of Judges. And if your kids don't think there's exciting tales, go to Judges. And, and the worst of the worst, Judges 19 through 21, the end of the book, is set up strategically by God to show us how desperate Israel was, basically, for God's chosen leader, for a king. That's the phrase throughout Judges. There was no king in Israel in those days. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, in this story, this is one expanded story, but it starts because a Levite and his concubine are abused within the tribe of Benjamin. The concubine is raped throughout the night. She's killed. This leads to basically civil war within the nation of Israel. And tens of thousands of people from throughout the nation are killed. And as you read the story, you're meant to, and you can't help but see, that Israel has descended morally to resemble the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God had destroyed by fire and brimstone in the pages of Genesis. God's chosen people, they look as bad as the cities God had wiped out entirely before. Civil war, tens of thousands of men in battle killed because Israel had not taken care of itself, because they'd not kept themselves holy. Where God was strategic earlier, and some like cancer being killed by God, this civil war that was engendered in Israel because of just gross immorality brought about the death of tens of thousands. It threatened the very fabric of the nation. God uses death strategically within His own covenant people. God also, of course, deals with death with those outside of the nation of Israel as well. God had warned the Jewish nation multiple times. He says, guys, listen. If you don't fully drive out the nations that are in the land of promise, drive them out or slay them in battle, what will happen is you'll take on their ways, you'll worship their gods, you'll fall away from me. And because, you remember Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, God is your life. When you fall away from me, God says, you'll fall away from life and blessing and all that's good. And so God had commanded, you've got to isolate this area in the land of promise in which you can be my covenant people. And as you're holy and devoted to me, you'll enjoy life and the nations around you will see that and they'll come to the light that you are and they'll come to life also. By the way, this is a difference if you hear discussions between God's commands in the Old Testament and Sharia law today, comparing the two under Sharia law and the Islamic faith or tradition, uh, there's a command there basically to take over the world. You don't see that in the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to carve out one small, and Palestine is an incredibly small piece of geography, I'm going to carve out one small part. That's where I brought about this element of death. I've cleansed this area to plant this holy nation so that the nations of the earth can see the light and the life of my nation and they'll come and they'll receive life. That was God's plan. That's very, very different than Sharia law and the, the Muslim agenda to take over the world. That's not what you see God commanding at all in Genesis or in the law. 
So, you know, in the ancient world, every city, if it was to have any security at all, it had to have a wall around it. In fact, if a city didn't have walls, it had no defenses to invading troops. And so the health or the safety of a city depended on a city wall, this physical barrier that wouldn't allow outsiders in unchecked. And Israel was to have effectively a wall around them that would keep the influence of the pagan nations around them out. Again, because God said if you admit them, if you admit their influence, they're going to lead you to death. Now, it didn't mean Gentiles couldn't come into the nation at all. God talked to them about welcoming sojourners. Gentiles could come in and trade in Israel. What they couldn't come in and do was introduce the worship of other gods. So Israel was to maintain a wall. You see this in passages like Exodus 23, verses 32 and 33. Make no covenant with them and their gods. They're not to dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. They'll be a snare to you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. They would turn your sons away from following me. So God said there, you're to start with this cleansed land. No pagan idolatry. You're to start fresh. And you're basically to keep a wall up, a wall of separation that prevents pagan sin from taking root within Israel. Now, for an example of how this went wrong within the nation, this may seem like an odd example, but if you look at the end of the life of King Solomon in 1 Kings 11, you see exactly this happening. And it's very interesting to me. You remember in the Trojan War, do you remember that the Greek armies, they're battling at the city of Troy, but they can't get past the walls. What are they going to do? And I think it's after 10 years, you know what? They say to the Trojans, wow, your, your walls are too much for us, guys. We've had it. We're out of here. And they slay, sail gloriously into the West. But they've left something behind. It's an attractive piece of artwork. It's a horse. It's a big horse. And the Trojans think, wow, look, this must be an offering to our gods. So they bring it within. The Greeks can't get through the walls, but the Trojans bring that horse within the walls of their city. And of course, hiding within the horse are the Greek soldiers. And they slip out at night. They open the gates. The Greek armies come back and they take the city. They couldn't breach the walls. They had to get the Trojans to open the gates for them. Well, when you look at Israel during Solomon's reign, it is the the golden heights of Israel's national history. If you read what life in the nation was like under King Solomon, it's all that God promised. But at the end of his life, and the text is very clear on this, at the end of his life, he was defeated. And he was defeated by foreign foes. And guess what? They didn't have to break the walls of Jerusalem down because the Trojan horse for Solomon were the foreign wives he voluntarily brought in and married. And they had never converted to the worship of Yahweh. They still worshiped their foreign gods. And the text says clearly, in Solomon's dotage, in his waning years, it says they turned his heart from Yahweh and he worships the vile pagan gods Molech and Chemosh. You see, Solomon wasn't conquered because the walls of Jerusalem were conquered. He'd opened the gates. The foreign element came in. And it was the beginning, along with some other sins, the seeds of the destruction of the nation. And in fact, in Rehoboam, his son's time, the nation is split in half, northern and southern tribes. Solomon didn't keep the walls out. 
And it was through the Trojan horse of the women he'd married. And just, by the way, just a cautionary tale. You know, young guys and gals, as you're considering the men or the women you're interested in for future marriage, remember that everything they are and do affects you. And if they're not committed to following Christ and honoring God, you're joining with someone that's going to add that element of death to your life as surely as Solomon's wives did to his. You've got to be careful. <clears throat> Slipping from first five books of the Bible up to the New Testament, bypassing all the, the good stuff in between just to get to a point of application as I wind down here. You and I today are called to take God's view of death and life. And we are called to practice strategic death within our own lives and within the life corporately of the church as well. Now, when we're talking about death here, we're not talking about execution, physical execution. We're not talking about fire from heaven or the earth opening up and swallowing any of us. But we are talking about a habit and a way of life and what's called church discipline as well. Uh, Jesus makes it clear, related to ourself, related to those who call themselves Christians who would follow Christ, Jesus makes it clear that salvation is absolutely free. The church's statement of belief says we believe we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't bring anything to that. We accept the free gift of salvation. It costs us nothing. As those saved by Christ's death and resurrection, however, we now become Jesus' disciples. And while salvation is free, discipleship is not. And discipleship costs us everything. Part of the reason the church is in such shambles today, why we have no effect apparently on culture, is because we don't practice this element of death within ourselves and within our churches. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Now, you know, crosses are things we wear around our necks. They're jewelry, they're gold, they're wood, they're whatever. You know, they're emblems today. When Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, guys, this had an entirely different effect. Because in Jesus' day, a cross was not adornment, it wasn't jewelry. It was this image, the epitome of the most humiliating, brutal death you could suffer. So when Jesus says, take up your cross as my disciple and follow me, he's saying, guys, you are to practice a brutal mindset with yourselves. You can't follow me the way you've lived life before. It takes a mentality that says, God, I realize I am dead to who I was and what I was. And you know Stan announcing the summer baptism. You remember that baptism is a symbol not only of our union with Christ in death and resurrection, but that symbolically means all that we were, we're dead to. All our past plans for ourselves, all our past ways of seeing life, making decisions on our own, for ourselves. Crucifixion, it ends all that. And Jesus says, my disciples practice a mindset and a lifestyle in which they practice strategic death. 
And guys, if we fail to live what's called a cruciform life, following this call, we don't see Christ's life magnified within us. We just see our old life recycled. So Jesus says you're called as his disciple, free gift of salvation, discipleship costs you everything. We're called to die to all that we were so that the life of Christ can be magnified in us. The same thing. We put to death the cancerous elements of our own sin so that the life of Christ can be magnified in us, just like Israel. Guys, if we don't kill the cancerous cells within us voluntarily, they take over our lives. I think for most of us, we don't have near brutal, black and white enough viewpoint on this call to practice strategic death within ourselves and within our own desires. And I certainly include myself in this. Kathy prayed for me just before the service. I'd been struggling this morning, she didn't know, with lust. Guys, I'm going to teach on killing lust. And in my quiet time, I'm thinking, the thoughts have already started. And I shake my head and I thought, I'm going to talk about killing sin and lust. And I've realized the gears have already started turning in my own mind. We've got... <laughs> We've got to be brutal. We've got to have our eyes wide open about putting to death, strategically putting to death, cruciform living, killing the cancer within ourselves because we've died with Christ, so that, not that we're not having fun, not so that God can sort of chalk up another victory or something. It's so that Christ's life, which is the best that we can have, can be magnified and can grow freely. We're also practice called to practice a kind of death within the church. I mentioned we call this church discipline. Uh, The New Testament is very clear on this, that whether it's morality or other lifestyle issues, or if it's a lack of doctrinal orthodoxy, the church is called to practice a strategic form of death, which is to put out Members of our own churches, if they fail to adhere to basic minimums, morality, lifestyle choices, and church doctrine. And in this culture, this is so, so against the flow of our culture. It's judgmental. And God makes no apology for it. But the same thing applies with us that applied to Israel. If we as a church or any church refuses to practice church discipline, strategic death, putting outside the fellowship of the church people who are entertaining lifestyles, God forbids, or doctrines that are not considered orthodox, we have doomed ourselves to destruction. And when you look at the mainline denominational churches in the United States today, I was reading about them this morning, all their numbers are declining. And it's because they didn't practice church discipline. They didn't hold on to doctrinal purity. They didn't require moral living. The things that God requires of us, they're dying. They're all slowly dying. And this church and any other that fails to practice church discipline would as well. And it's not because we take any delight in judging someone else. God wants life. And we want life for brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But church discipline is required to preserve the life of the church and the witness of the church. Those old mainline churches that have basically embraced the culture, the article I was reading this morning was talking about one of the Presbyterian groups that had not only were homosexuals okay in the church, but homosexual and lesbian leaders in the church were okay as well. That was the latest on this. You can see that the church ends up being no different than the culture around it. The church has absolutely nothing to give to this culture if we don't embrace and hold on to the truth. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Praxy. Right living and right doctrine. We're called to it. I'll just mention 1 Corinthians 5. I'll let you read that later. Titus 3 is about doctrine, which many Christians don't think is a big deal, but when you let go of right doctrine, you've guaranteed the fall of your church. Your, your death has slowly begun already. Paul said to Titus in Titus 3, 10 and 11, a person who stirs up division, and your translation I'm reading from the ESV this morning, your translation may use a different word, but in the Greek the word is heresy or heretic. It's a heresy. It's not a person who says a little something different on this marginal teaching. No, it's a heresy. Paul says if you've warned a heretic twice, have nothing more to do with them. They're not welcome in your church. The early church practiced church discipline, strategic death within itself, so that Christ's life would be maintained and the church's witness would not go the way of Israel's witness. Uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, book, if you haven't read his book, The Great Divorce, is one of our favorites, one of our family favorites. And very briefly, in the story, residents of hell, which is a dreary, rainy, cloudy, dark place, get to take a bus ride. They've got a day pass. They leave hell, and they enter the, the edges of heaven. And they get to look around, and they get to decide if they'd like to stay there and live in heaven instead of the dreary hell they've come from. And among the personalities that we see in this story, there's one dark, oily figure. And he has a lizard on his shoulder. And Lewis isn't very specific what's, what is said, except that we know that this lizard is saying things that are crude and vulgar and we assume immoral. And the guy's dark, oily persona has taken on the influence of the lizard, flicking its tongue and its tail, telling these crude jokes or stories. Well, this magnificent, glowing angel approaches this dark, oily figure and asks him if he'd like to stay in heaven. And the guy tells him, look, it's no good. I've got this guy with me, this lizard on my shoulder, and I know what he does. It, it, it's not, it doesn't work up here. So no, I'm just resigned. We're going back. And the angel tells him, well, you know what? If you want, I can kill that lizard for you. And you can stay. And they go through this conversation back and forth and and it's, it's brilliant because it's the same things you and I say in our own mind. And the guy's equivocating. Well, maybe tomorrow, maybe not today. You know, Maybe, maybe uh, just slow it down a little. Don't kill it entirely. The way we toy with our own sins in our own minds. And as he goes through this conversation, eventually, you know, he just realizes, my life is miserable this way. And so he says to the angel, yes, kill it. And the angel reaches out with its fiery hand and it grabs the lizard and it throws it to the ground. And as the guy watches, this transformation occurs to both lizard and man. And this dark, oily man becomes this glorious, large, enlarged man. And the crummy, gross lizard 
transforms into this glorious big horse and together the guy on the horse leap faster and faster up into the heights of heaven itself. And the lesson was kill the lizard and live. Kill the lizard and you'll live. Kill the lizard and you get to stay here. And that's the lesson for us. Put to death, practice strategic death, because that's what God does and it's what He requires for us to enjoy life. Kill the lizard and live. Ultimately, Jesus' death is proof of God's radical commitment to life. The God we love and serve is the God of life and death. And there's no more sure example of that than Jesus' death, crucifixion, and resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate example of God's radical commitment through death to bring about life. And let me close with three verses from John 3, 16 through 18. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And when it says gave His Son, that means death. That's crucifixion. Gave His only Son for a purpose. So that anyone who believes in Him should not perish. Jesus died so you can have life. Jesus died so we don't have to die. But have eternal life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might live. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Don't suffer eternal death. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Guys, this is the thing today. Moses there on the plains across the Jericho, as the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the land, Moses says... Choose Yahweh and live. He's your life. And Jesus Christ has strode across history and He stands up, the one that's better than Moses today, and God says through Jesus today, choose Jesus and live. He is the God of death. We see that in Jesus' crucifixion. He's the God of life. We see that in Jesus' resurrection. And his appeal to us today and through the church and through each one of us to those around us is choose Jesus and live. God does not characterize himself as the God of death, though he deals in it as a necessity. He's the God of life. And while there are other things at play, the God we love uses death to bring about, to preserve life. Father, Thank you that Jesus is the ultimate display of your radical commitment to life. Lord God, would you save us from petty dreams and small examples of living? Would you help us practice radical, crucified living that the life of Christ might be enlarged in us? Lord, would you help us as a church to display the life of Christ in our midst collectively to bring honor and glory to you, to obey the commands of Jesus, to bless each other, and Lord, to be that place that others can come in and can enter into life with you, life that lasts through the ages. We plead with you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.